Hey guys, thank you for listening to Good News Unspoken. Uh, we are here at St. John the Evangelist Parish. It's actually a local parish community podcast that we're putting together. Um, I'm here with our great friend, also awesome, awesome parishioner at uh, St. John the Evangelist, who will be talking to us today about some uh, really, really cool things. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we look at in our church, especially our church and uh, church life, is that I think the one of the things that we suffer from is the belief in miracles nowadays. It's just the, this this thing about miracles really falls short of of what of, of what God does every day in, in, in the Holy Mass. Uh, we have the miracles through our sacraments, such as baptism. We have reconciliation. Most of all, especially the Eucharist, the Eucharistic celebration. We have here we have here Fred Casillas to talk about the Eucharistic celebration and uh, what that means. Um, and, and actually, and actually, in fact, uh, we're going to be talking about the Eucharistic revival. Uh, so that's super exciting, and uh, we, I want you guys to be able to have an open heart, an open mind. But before we get started, I, I believe uh, Fred has an amazing prayer to lead us in uh, to start with uh, today. So uh, you want to listen some prayer, Fred? Hello, and thank you, my friends, for joining us today. The topic for today is going to be going to be about our Catholic National Eucharistic Revival. But first of all, we're going to get off to a big bang, a big start, and I'd like you to please join me in a prayer invoking the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, and in being great Catholics, good Catholics, trying Catholics, we're going to start with a uh, sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, by the light of the Holy Spirit, you have taught the hearts of your faithful. In the same Spirit, help us to know what is truly right and always rejoice in your consolation. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the reason we'd like to start with the prayer is because remember Matthew 18, verse 20? It states, it reads, where two or more are gathered in my name, that's Jesus, there am I in the midst of them. Okay, Eucharistic renewal. Why do we need a Eucharistic renewal? Here's where we go. A couple of years ago, there was a Pew Research survey conducted that revealed that only 30% of Catholics who had received Holy Communion at Mass were aware that they had received the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And there was another one later, and it revealed that only 40% believed that they had received the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So starting from there, Holy Mother Church decided that it was time to start a Eucharistic renewal aiming towards, directed towards teaching the faithful, that's us, that we are indeed receiving the divine Christ when we receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. To highlight that fact, I'm going to use sacred scripture, which as we know is the word of God. We're also going to use the catechism of the Catholic Church, and we're also going to use papal dogma. So let's get into that. Here we go. Let's go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This goes to the meat of the issue. This is uh, paragraph 1324. The Catholic Church says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. And I'll repeat that. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, the very peak the other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself, our past. So what does that mean? That means... In a nutshell, that everything we do from going to Mass to being in the Knights of Columbus, the Altar Society, our Acts Corps, um, 
gosh, all the wonderful things that we do in our parishes to make it thrive. Everything must be directed ultimately to God, to Jesus Christ. Reading from paragraph 1327 again in the Catechism of the Church. In brief, the Eucharist is the sum and summary of our faith. Our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist, in turn, confirms our way of thinking. Uh, picture the solar system. Let me use a little bit of a, I guess you'd call it a metaphor. Look at the sun, right? Gives us all this warmth and energy and radiating love. And all the 28 planets, oh, no, it's a few less. What is it? Eight planets rotate around that beautiful, magnificent sun that makes things grow and gives us light. Picture that as being uh, Jesus. We all rotate around that. The planets, that's us. Our souls, our love, our mind rotates around this sun, radiating love and mercy to us, to we people. That's a great way, I think, to explain a little bit of what I'm talking about. Indeed, it is called a sacrament, the Eucharist. It's also known as, you've probably heard some of these, and you might think of others, but here's what I got. The Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, the Eucharistic assembly, the memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection, the holy sacrifice, also the holy sacrifice of the Mass, spiritual sacrifice, sacrifice of praise, and my favorite, oh, what? I forgot Holy Communion. But wait, my favorite is the sweet sacrament. That's by far my favorite. So let's take a biblical walk through all this. As I said earlier, we're going to use biblical, uh, biblical writings. We're going to use, I just used the catechism. And a bit later, we'll re refer to some of what our greatest popes and the dogma from our, our faith. Real quick, Fred, just had a question. I wanted to know, what is dogma and what is catechism? Uh, for those who don't understand, just so that people have a better understanding of dogma and catechesis. Okay. Or catechism. Dogma, dogma is teachings of the magisterium. Magisterium is a difficult world, a difficult word, rather, that denotes uh, the Pope. He has papal authority, dating all the way back to Peter. And remember, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, uh, in Aramaic, it was called Cephas. Uh, God established Peter as the head, the boss of the church, giving him the keys. And then a bit later in Matthew, um, a couple of chapters late, later, he gave that authority to bind and loose, not only to St. Peter, the first pope, but he also gave that authority to the rest of the uh, 11 apostles. And that's more or less what we call our our magisterium. We have it today. It exists right now, 2,000 years later. And the head of our of our papal dogma, so to speak, is Pope Francis. He's our current, uh, our current pope. And uh, to, again, 2,000 years later, same teaching, beautiful teaching by Jesus, authority. It means papal authority. And the magisterium in conjunction with the pope, the bishops, the cardinals, the priests, all of them form our magisterium, giving us the teaching dating back to the apostles. So it's called apostolic succession. And I've got a little bit more on that later, and I'll further clarify. The catechism is something that was put together in um, 1992, 1995. And uh, the poor memory that I have, I can't remember the pope that gave the order to start it. But in 1992, it was put together in a book called The Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, you, can, you can search that in your uh, Google by putting CCC and then space and then including the number of the paragraph you want to look up in your search bar, your search engine. It's a wonderful tool. It clarifies, oh, I'd say, almost everything that the Catholic Church teaches and believes. The uh, apostolic teachings are included, I believe, almost entirely, if not entirely, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So if you have the Catechism, you have sacred scripture, which means the Bible, then you are just way, way, way ahead and just coming closer to the Word of God. So th that's what those two terms mean, Catechism 
and uh, papal teaching. So uh, coming again all the way down from St. Peter, the first pope. So let me uh, get back to the uh, papal teaching, uh, uh, ra rather biblical teaching. So what I'm going to do is take screenshots of, uh, of these items that I'm going to refer to because it's, it's immense and I don't think I have enough time for that. But I'm going to pull the meat off the bone here and uh, we'll present this to you. So we're going to start by going back. Let's go back to this last December to several weeks into the beginning of Advent. Remember, Advent is the preparatory time where we celebrate the birth, the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Blessed Virgin Mary is the mother, the, the uh, virgin mother of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go to Luke 1. This will be chapter 1 of, of Luke, the evangelist verses 28 to 38. And again, this is inspired sacred scripture. It begins, The angel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was, Catholics out there, what name are you putting in that space? The virgin's name was Mary our blessed mother. And coming to her, he, the angel, said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. God, that gives me a chill just saying that. But she was greatly troubled at, at what was said, and she pondered on what sort of greeting this might be. Can you imagine this young woman, probably, what, around 15 years old, being spoken to by this mighty angel, Gabriel? Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God, that's just beautiful. Whew. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Oh, that's Jesus. Give me a moment. Ooh, God, that's so tremendous. Hmm. And you will name him Jesus, Jesus, our Lord. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of David his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, listen to this, there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The gospel of the Lord. Now a little bit of light. Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary. And uh, Elizabeth was quite old at the time. So there was a miracle going on there with Elizabeth's pregnancy. And there's, there's a big, beautiful side story that I don't think I have the time to get into. But... That sheds a lot of light on where I'm going to now. Okay, we dealt with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God, being becoming man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now let's jump forward 40 weeks or nine months. This is another reading from Sacred Scripture. This we go to how Luke writes about it. This is the second chapter in Luke, verses 1 to 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. Rather, This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be enrolled, each to his own town. In other words, there was a census. And Joseph too went up from Galilee, 
from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David that is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of the family of David to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So you can picture Joseph, the Blessed Mother, and Jesus going along this trail traveling to this town in Bethlehem. While the the, uh, gospel continues, while they were there, the time came for her to have a child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over the flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Can you imagine that picture? How brilliant it must have been. And they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the city of David a Savior has been born for you who is Messiah and Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Jesus. Okay, two dynamic uh, Gospels there, uh, the birth and the Incarnation. So we've touched, we've just barely touched base. So, okay, now we have recited Holy Scripture, referring to the incarnation and the, of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, also known as the Word, also known as Jesus Christ, also known as the Messiah, also the Son of God, also the Son of Man, also the God-Man, in other terms. Jesus, he took upon himself the nature of man, the nature of us, his, his children. And he was capable of suffering and sickness and death. He became like a man except for sin. Now remember the second person of the Holy Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here referring to... We're referring to the second person, Jesus. Not Jesus, but the second person always was in existence, for he is God and always will be in existence. Except only now, after the incarnation, he was incarnate with a human body. The blood, the soul, with intellect and will of a human body. Just like us, just like us. And you can find the reference to that in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 470. Also, you heard a reference to the cousin of Jesus. That cousin was John the Baptist. Do you remember the famous assertion from John the Baptist when he shouted out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. More on that a little later. We'll get to that. Let's move over for 30 years. Holy Scripture is pretty quiet about the life of Jesus, the Son of God. Not much happened. Uh, There was a temple incident, and I can't think of anything else, but they're very quiet as compared to what's going to come now in the next three years. So now the Lord Jesus Christ is 30 years old, right? The the start of our Lord's earthly ministry. From here we go to the baptism of Jesus. This was in the Jordan River by his cousin, the great prophet John the Baptist. Here I go to Holy Scripture again. We're going to be using John 1, chapter 1 of John, one of the evangelists. Remember those Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was also known as the one whom Jesus loved. 
And again, John 1, chapter 29 to 34. It goes this way. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Meaning that he was going to be the sacrificial lamb destined for the sacrifice on Calvary on the cross. As well as memorialized at every Mass thereafter. He is the one of whom I said, John is saying this, A man is coming after me who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I did not know him. But the reason why I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. That's the Jews. John testifies further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from heaven and remain upon him. So as we read the story, there was a, a dove that came down and rested above, hovered above the head of Jesus. John continues, I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, this would be God the Father speaking to him, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Remember, John the, baptized, John the Baptist rather, baptized only with water. Jesus baptized with uh, the Spirit, with water and the Spirit. Now we have seen and testified that He is the Son of God. That's the Gospel of John 1, verse 29 to 34. Later in the Gospel, we'll put a little icing on the cake, so to speak. Let's turn the page in sacred scripture to Matthew chapter 3. Verse 17. Matthew, of course, was one of the apostles, one of the evangelists. And he writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, And a voice came from the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That is the voice of God the Father speaking. So what do you have here? Look at this beautiful picture, folks. This is where Jesus the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, not only Jesus, God, but also man. So he's true God and true man. He's equipped for his ministry by the Holy Spirit and is proclaimed to be the Son of Almighty God the Father. For here we have the three persons of the Holy Trinity. What a picture. What a beautiful picture. Okay, after that start of Jesus' ministry, biblically, spiritually, and in in Holy Scripture inspired by God Himself, the Holy Spirit, Jesus spent three years before His crucifixion teaching His gospel of love and mercy, talking about the final judgment. He was establishing His church and her sacraments, He was performing miracles. He was establishing his apostolic teaching and many other things. But for now again, I want to focus on the Eucharist. Okay, great. Here we go. This is going to be a really, really, really important part of sacred scripture. I think it goes to, it just goes straight to what a lot of what I'm talking about here. This, again, is sacred scripture. This is known as, a lot of you probably heard this, the bread of life discourse. It's such a, a meaty piece of our sacred scripture. This is John writing it. John 6, chapter, verse rather, 47 to 58. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat, eat it, and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give 
is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? At this point, let me deflect just a little bit. A lot of the Jews, a lot of his disciples left him. They were thinking uh, cannibalism, craziness. This is too much. I can't go for this. So a lot of his disciples just walked away and they left. They walked away. Back to the uh, scriptures. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And here you can hear Jesus referencing to the, the manna back uh, during uh, the Exodus period, the manna that did not last forever. Another one, this time well, I'm taking you to Holy Week. Not too long ago, right? Easter we started with Palm Sunday. And then we go to Holy Thursday, Holy Week. This is Thursday of Holy Week. This is the Last Supper. And this is written by Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. This is how Luke handles such an august moment. He writes, When the hour came, he took his place at table with the apostles. He said to them, this is Jesus, God speaking, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Key words, before I suffer, indicating a sacrifice. He goes back, for I tell you, I shall not eat it again until there is fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you that from this time on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread, said the blessing. This is what the priest does. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, Picture what happens at Mass when Father takes that large host and breaks it, called a fracture, and he breaks that large host in half or a third and consumes it. And then back to uh, uh, Luke writes, priest gave it to them saying, and then Jesus says, this is my body, which will be given for you. Do this in memory of me. Now, this is not a request. This is not a buddy talking to a buddy. This is a great command. Do this in memory of me. And now, that was 2,000 years ago. Here we are 2,000 years later, and it's still that same procedure, that same beautiful sacrament is being done right now. It's all over this world at Mass, doing this in remembrance of me. It wasn't a one-time deal. It was forever until the end of time. So 2,000 years later, that still holds true. On to the last verse, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be shed for you. So there you have two evangelists handling this beautiful, monumentous event. Further, I'm going to say here that at the Last Supper, celebrating the Passover, Jesus makes explicit, excuse me, explicit that his impending death is freely embraced out of love and it is sacrificial. 
While they were eating, Jesus took that bread, said the blessing, and broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said again, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it for all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here you have all this beautiful narrative from, from Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, giving the apostles the command to continue doing this. And that's where we get today, like I said just a second ago or two, it continues to this very day and again tomorrow and again next year or maybe 10,000 years till the end of time. That same sacrificial action takes takes uh, uh, takes uh, it happens at mass we can see it right there in front of us and the words and gestures of the last supper jesus makes it clear that out of love for us he is freely offering his life for the forgiveness of sins and doing so he is both the priest offering a sacrifice to god the father he's offering his sacrifice to god the father an offering prefigured what prefigured means is it was referred to further back in the old testament where we were being prepared for remember the messiah coming to to uh, uh the jews thought to release them from the control of uh at back then would be the egyptians and currently at this time with jesus would be the romans and and uh, that's what prefiguring meant prefiguring the offering of bread and wine by melchizedek the priest of God, Most High. You can find that in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 14, verse 18. Or the Psalms, Psalm 110, number 4. Or in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7. Let's go on to the Catholic Church, uh, the Catechism of the Church. It explains things further here. It reads, In the Epiclesis, and I'll explain what Epiclesis is in just a minute. The church asks the Father to send his Holy Spirit, that's partially uh, the explanation there, of the power of his blessing, of the Holy Spirit's blessing, on the bread, which is a plain host, and the wine, which is plain wine at this time, so that by his power they may become the body and blood of Christ. So that those who take part in the Eucharist, that's receiving Holy Communion, may be one body and one spirit. So uh, picture this. Uh, let me just say one more thing and then I'll get to a further explanation. In, it's called the institution narrative, this part of the epiclesis. The power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit make sacramentally present under the species of bread and wine Christ's, Christ God's body and blood, his sacrifice offered on the cross once for all. So about in the middle of the Mass, Father does the epiclesis. He stretches his hands over the gifts, which is a plain host and plain wine, and you can see him stretch his hands, they'll come together, over these offerings and he'll do a sign of the cross and what he does there is call down the power of the holy spirit and what i like to go do as a visual aid is tell people to to visualize the heavens opening and the holy spirit god the holy spirit and angels the heavens open and all of this beauty magnificence and holiness comes down upon this altar everywhere in the world at this moment and changes this plain wafers of bread and this plain wine into the substance of the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle. Right there it happens. And I use all the stuff that I was referring to earlier. It comes from Jesus Christ himself, not from the priest. It comes down what we call in persona Christi, in the presence of Christ. All of this happens through Jesus, through the presence of the, of the priest there, 
in the presence of God in persona Christi. It's a miracle performed by the Holy Spirit. The institution narrative means the words that Father says. By the time he has done these motions and blessed the body uh, and, and blessed the ordinary host and ordinary wine, it then becomes an addition with the prayer, the words that he uses. It, as I said, it becomes a miracle. And you have the body, blood, soul, and divinity of God, Jesus Christ. So that's where we say that you're not only just receiving plain old bread, plain old wine, but you're receiving the real body and blood of Christ. So that's my best explanation that I can do on that. It's just, it's a miracle and it's beautiful. Again, use that visual aid of the heavens opening. And you're part of it. This doesn't just happen. You're part of that. You're, you're a major part of that. And I'll come to that in just a little bit. I'll show you why I say that. Okay, it is the real presence of Jesus. The real the, the Eucharist is not merely a symbol of Jesus, right? It's not just bread. Nor is Christ only spiritually present vaguely in some little, you know, maybe shadowy way in the bread and wine. Because at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and wine and said, This is my body, this is my blood. Unlike other Christian communities, they view the Eucharist merely as a sacred symbol. It's just a little ceremony that they do. Or just they view it as just a reminder of Jesus. The Catholic Church affirms that when the priest at Mass recites these words of Jesus at the moment of consecration, I haven't mentioned that, right? The consecration is this whole uh, word, the two words put together, epiclesis, an institution. That's what's called transubstantiation. It is the substance is changed from bread and wine to body and blood of Christ through the words of Jesus, through Christ. And this expresses how by the consecration of the bread and wine that there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread and to the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine and to the substance of his blood. And you can look further into that in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1376, 1376. That'll help you clarify. I know we're going through a lot of material quickly. Now, to, now, it didn't all end there at, on Holy Thursday to where there was just one incident. The church fathers continue to teach this, and the Holy Church continues to do this from that day on after the crucifixion. And I can go back as far as um, Christ was, uh, what, crucified in A.D. 33, right? I have a writing here from uh, A.D. 51. And it's called the tradition of the institution. The apostles started teaching what Christ had taught them those three years. This is called the apostolic tradition. The teaching of the apostles, they were teaching what Jesus had taught them to teach us. This comes from the writing of Paul, Apostle Paul. Remember, he was a great persecutor. Uh, he... <laughs> He hunted down Christians uh, and it gave him great pleasure. He felt that he was doing great. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. And he thought he was doing right because in his mind, Christians, Catholics, were bad, blasphemous people. But this is what Paul writes, again in 51 AD. Remember his conversion at Damascus? He was knocked down off his horse, rendered blind, and he heard Jesus speak to him. Okay, this is what Paul writes. Paul writes, again, in Paul 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27, first book of Corinthians. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. That's us. That's the Christians, Catholics then. That's us right here, me sitting at this table. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, uh, handed over. You remember the story of where the, uh, 
the Romans came and uh, uh, the Pharisees uh, uh, had him uh, um, arrested and taken away for to be crucified, judged and crucified. And uh, continue. And after he had given thanks, this is Jesus. After Jesus had given thanks, broke the bread and said, "This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." There we hear, hear it again. That command. It wasn't forgotten. This was twenty, uh, almost twenty years later, still using that narrative. Do this in remembrance of me. And it continues on, like I said, two thousand years. Continuing, it says, In the same way also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. So remember, as Catholics, as good Catholics, we cannot, we cannot take communion, we cannot consume that beautiful body and blood of Jesus in the state of mortal sin. We have to be without mortal sin. So naturally, we go to conf uh, confession, the sacrament of reconciliation, given to us just, what, three days after that? at the resurrection, but we're not going to go there. We're staying with the Eucharist. So we need that clean soul to be able to worthily receive the body and blood of Jesus. Now I'm going to use some testimony, some testimony by our uh, papal authorities, some papal dogma. Here I'm going to use one of our wonderful saints. I know everybody remembers this saint, testimony of Pope St. John Paul II. He reminded us of this ongoing presence when he repeated to us the words of Christ. I am with you always till the end of the age. How is he going to be with us always? He is always with us, not only in his presence, his loving presence, but he is with us at the sacrifice of the mass where we can freely consume his body and blood. That's one way that he'll be with us always. We find that again in Matthew 28, verse 20. He proclaimed, This promise of Christ never ceases to resound in the church as the fertile secret of her life and the wellspring of her hope. As the day of resurrection, Sunday is not only the remembrance of a past event, it is a celebration of the living presence of the risen Lord in the midst of his own people. Beautiful words by Pope St. John Paul II. How about words from St. Uh, from rather Pope, who I just made him a saint. Maybe he will be someday. Pope Benedict just recently passed. May he rest in peace. He's a noted theologian. This man knew, knew his stuff, right? Here's what Pope Benedict wrote. The remembrance of his perfect gift, that's the Eucharist, consists not in the mere repetition of the Last Supper, but in the Eucharist itself, that is, in the radical newness of Christian life. In this way, Jesus left us the task of entering into this hour. The Eucharist draws us into Jesus, and to Jesus' act of self-oblation. That means sacrifice. Self-oblation means sacrifice more than just statically receiving the incarnate Logos, we enter into the very dynamic of his self-giving. We become part of that sacrifice. We become all of it, some of it, all of it. It's part of us in unison with Jesus. We can say as Christians, we know that we need Christ to be present in our lives. I know I do. I know I'm happier when I have Christ in my life. Christ is our very sustenance. As he reminded us, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. That comes from John 6, verse 53. 
more dogma right here. This is the council of, uh, this is the second Vatican council. Not too long ago, right? 1962, right? For all you guys uh, about my age, uh, 42 or so, this will ring a bell, Vatican council. Alex is smiling, right? A little bit of an exaggeration. In the dogmatic constitution of the second Vatican council. Again, dogma means sacred church teaching, what we as Catholics take to heart wholeheartedly. It reads, on the second liturgy, uh, pronounced sancrosanctum concilium, that's a hard one, it states, the liturgy, in this sense it means the mass, is the summit towards which the activity of the church is directed. I referred to that earlier. Here we're going to say it again. Is directed. At the same time, it is the font from which all her power flows. Christ is our power. For the aim and object of apostolic words is that all who are made sons of God by faith and baptism, we can't forget baptism, that's the first one, should come together to praise God in the midst of his church and to take part in the sacrifice and to eat the Lord's Supper. We take part in that. We just don't sit there idly. Let's jump for final consideration. That was in 1962. Let's go to the Council of, of, uh, of Trent. This will be our final one here. This is called the Doctrine on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. This was in 1562. I wasn't there for that one, but uh, anyway, 1562. Uh, it reads, The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy tells us that to accomplish, accomplish so great a work, Christ is always present in His Church. Especially, here comes Biggie, especially in its liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, that's the priest, this would be the same now offering through the ministry of priests, who formerly offered himself on the cross, it's referring back to Jesus, but especially under the Eucharistic elements. By his power, he is present in the sacraments. He's referring to Jesus, our Lord and God. So that when a man baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. Jesus is present in his word, sacred scripture, since it is he himself who speaks when the holy scriptures are read in the church. He is present, lastly, when the church prays and sings. That's us, my friends, the pew sitters. That's us sitting in the pews adoring Jesus Christ. When the church prays and sings, for he promised, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And that takes us, that came out again out of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Council of Trent. So that's a lot of wonderful material that we can uh, chew on and concentrate on and believe in and worship God Almighty in because he's been so good to us, giving us these sacraments, his body and blood and that uh, bread and previously bread and wine, then after consecration becomes his real body, blood, soul, and divinity. So I opened with a prayer. Join me in closing with the prayer. And with this one, I'd like to ask uh, St. Michael the Archangel to intercede for us. It's the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. So join me with the uh, sign of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We pray, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him. We humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits 
who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank you, my friends, and may God bless you and be with you. You know, thank you, Fred, so much for um, for that amazing, amazing presentation. I know the uh, this whole Eucharistic revival, the Eucharistic celebration, brings so so much um, so much realness uh, to to the faith. I mean, it, it's the apex, it's the summit of why we go to mass. I mean, granted, the homilies and, and and the music. A lot of times, we got certain parishes that really focus, and a lot of parishes that focus on those kinds of things, but. Uh, what it boils down to is when it's when that it's when heaven meets earth. It's that's that time that the Eucharist uh, truly becomes. It is truly the body and presence of God. So I want to thank you, Fred uh, Casillas, for the amazing presentation. And uh, again, uh, for those of you who are listening, this is um, again good news unspoken. Uh, we want to be able to invite you guys to listen to us as frequently as possible. Um, and one of the biggest thing is you know parish life is beautiful. Uh, this is the whole reason why parish life exists, uh, because the Eucharist is the reason why we, why we're here, why we're present. And I want to invite each and every one of you to um, to dig more into your faith, to dig more into uh, prayer, to dig more into um, your spiritual journey, not just privately, but in the public life of the Catholic faith uh, by getting involved in parish life. You can listen to us on Podbean, um, also Spotify, and other um, podcast uh, uh, sources and outlets uh, that will be present on the website. I want to thank again Fred Casillas and again ministry podcasts done by parishioners just like yourself. Thank you guys. God bless you. We hope to see you next time.